0: Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back and relax as we listen to today's
1: message. Hello? it's on.: Well, hello. Uh, I'm Manuel, and I would like to say <laughs> I'd like to say "Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers here first and uh, um, if you're able to, would you join me in standing as we read God's word together. Ephesians 5, 33. Wives and husbands. Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without a blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one who ever ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ, the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let, wife, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated.
0: We have uh, been going through the book of Ephesians. it on? Okay. We've been going through the book of Ephesians, and uh, we come to this uh, very famous passage on marriage, and uh, we're going to pause there and and look at marriage uh, for the next four weeks, uh, just looking and reflecting on this passage. And uh, I'll I'll just tell you right away that I'm actually pretty nervous about looking and doing this with you uh, for a couple reasons. One, personally, um, because I, I'm, I'm doing this, you know, in front of my wife, and, you know, you know how um, after the State of the Union address, they immediately go to, like, the opposing party for, like, a response? Um, I'm, my wife could do that every week. Um <laughs> But probably the video or podcast after marriage sermons would be the longest and most viewed. So I don't, I don't speak, um, yeah, as somebody who, who lives a perfect marriage and knows exactly what marriage should be, and all of you just need to catch up to me at all. Um, I, I'm trying to figure this out and follow this as much as any of you. But it's also uh, a little nervous for me because I don't know the intimacy in all of your stories on marriage, and there are some wonderful ones, and there are some hard ones, and there are some broken ones. And, and every time we talk on this passage, it's not abstract. It's very real and personal to a lot of our stories, but here's, here's why we really need to sit in this for, for about four weeks, for the next month, it, it is because um, you can't really understand Christianity unless you understand marriage, because the Bible begins with a marriage. In in the book of Genesis, I mean, one of the first things we're shown in the creation account is the giving of a marriage, and at the end of the Bible, the way the Bible ends is it says it will end in a picture of a marriage. And as you look out into the culture and, and we talk about marriage, it's pretty astounding, right? As the growth of secularism has just engulfed this culture, yet we're still interested in marriage. We're still having conversations that, like, even if people have just moved far beyond, you know, what what we would think is Christian values influencing the culture, people are not reinventing institutions for how to be together. It's just the same thing, the same institution people are passionate about uh, redefining, which means we have got to begin to understand really what the Bible teaches about marriage, There was an article in uh, Forbes magazine about two years ago on startup companies, and it said one of the main reasons startup companies fail is because of a lack of self-awareness. That is, they do not understand the intricacies of of the exact field that they are in and actually what the product they are trying to sell and and demonstrate is to the consumer. And, And what Christians have done with marriage is advocate for it and talk about it, with, I, I think, without self-awareness, about what, what actually does the Bible teach about marriage? I, I know the social, traditional arrangements that we've been around and been exposed to and grown up with, but what does the Scripture actually teach about marriage? And this morning, what I want to do is just kind of give you a big overview of some central things that the Bible does teach about marriage. It, I think it teaches us three things. One, that marriage is a power, two, that marriage is a gift, and three, that marriage is a mystery. First, marriage is a power. Um, if you look in this text um, that's just drenched in, in, in powerful language, I mean, he says this in verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Then the very next verse, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and his self-disabled and himself as a Savior. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I mean, throughout this text, everything that Paul is going to say about marriage, when he's going to talk about his instructions, his commands, uh, his outline for what this should look like, everything is drenched in this, do as you do to the Lord. Uh, there, there's an idea of replication here, or, or, or there's an idea of example. Just as Jesus is like this to you, or just as the church is like this to Jesus, in the same way, you should do this. And what, what he's saying is every part of your relationship in marriage is all interrelated, intricately shaped and influenced by God's relationship to us it's not as though you could have a relationship spiritually over here and a marriage over here and the two never interrelated, inter- inter- nor can you actually have a marriage over here and it's abstract from uh, any sort of spiritual dynamic over here. He says every part of it is deeply entrenched in this, which means marriage has an unbelievable power. Now, some of you um, who may be new here or... Um, not really convinced of some of these things, say, well, yeah, you think this is a Christian. Um, Well, not really. Uh, John Witte, who's a uh, professor at Emory University, uh, teaches law. Uh, He has wrote extensively on the history of marriage laws. He's one of the most well-known scholars on marriage laws in the history of the world. And he says, look, when you come to marriage laws across cultures, these are not scientifically proved. Like, when when you want to talk about uh, how hard it should be to get divorced in a culture... You, you cannot determine that empirically. He says every culture that goes about these comes at them with actually deep religious conviction. You, you, that is, you can't think about the intricacies and in the nature of marriage unless you're really becoming aware of how spiritually influenced this whole relationship is because marriage has an enormous power. See, when you get into marriage what you begin to realize is this person that's in your life now has the ability to make your life or break your life. Because this person now has been granted a relationship that gives you more of a picture of what it's like to know God than any other relationship that you will have in the world. That, that marriage is the closest thing that, uh, to having God immediately around you. Then you can have anything else. Let me explain that. Um, if you look at the character of God, uh, some of the theological terms people have used to describe uh, God's character and His sort of character to His creation are, are words like omniscience. Uh, he knows everything. When you get married, the person who you are living with knows you in a way no one else knows you. You can have a reputation out there in the world… But this person begins to know everything about you. Uh, Another word used for God's character, omnipresent. That is, he is with his creation, in his creation, and around it at all times. When you get married, you have somebody who is always with you, always around you. You are always accountable to, always doing life with. There is no hiding, there is no running. And in fact, if you do, everybody knows it's a, it's a deeply dysfunctional lie. And the, the, another word that, uh used for the character of God, omnipowerful. That is, God's relationship to the creation is the most powerful, influential, central relationship to what it means to be a human being. And when you get married now, it, it, this person is not like another person that you bring into your story. Your story begins to be redefined and taken around this person. Because it's a power. There was a fascinating story last week uh, in the, the British Sun Times on Bill Gates. And what was fascinating about the story is uh, it talked about how successful Bill Gates is and just how much he's done and yet the sadness of his recent divorce. Here's what it says, it said, said, didn't he nearly have it all? A billionaire by the time he was 31, he seemed to get everything right. His company, Microsoft, led the tech boom, but being the richest man alive wasn't enough. Paintings, yachts, jets, sword, but they bored him. He wanted to rescue the world too. In the next three decades, hear this, he gave away more than $50 billion dollars to try to eradicate polio, eliminate malaria, all of that. But what really set him apart in the midst of Silicon Valley was his marriage to Melinda. That everybody thought, but this man can do all of this, have all of this, and have an amazing marriage. And when his marriage fell apart, the question that was asked to him is, So you can't do all of this and manage the home life. And his response was, no, I think marriage is more complex than my job. Now, hear hear that. Here's a man who has made so much money, he gave away $50 billion, has done more to eradicate polio, change our world with technology and stuff like that, and says marriage is more complex than all of that. If you don't grasp that, that marriage is a power, and why it's a power, then everything else the Apostle Paul is going to say about marriage will just never hit you, and it will never make sense to you. And you may get in a marriage and wonder why in the world it's gone the way that it's gone. Because the the first thing you have to understand about marriage is that it is a power. Secondly, though, marriage is a gift. Um, We have this quote from Paul here, where he's talking about marriage uh, in the roles, in the instructions. Uh, And then he says uh, in verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now what he's doing here is, is he's quoting Genesis 2, which is the giving of the first marriage. And what you have in that scenario is actually fascinating. Adam is living in the garden Uh, It's everything is perfect. I mean, it's without stain or wrinkle. Everything is good. But it says that Adam is alone. And then it it says the Lord God looked at him and says, it is not good that man should be alone, which is a fascinating statement because in the previous chapter, God makes everything. And after he makes it, the first thing he says is, it is good. It is good. It is good. But when he comes to man and man is alone, he says, this is not good. And the reason it's not good is because this man being alone is made in the image of a God who is not alone. So Adam is there, and what happens is God wants Adam to experience this incredible intimacy and this incredible commitment that he has within himself in the Trinity, in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the Christian understanding of God. Three distinct persons, one being in essence. And they have had something that is incredibly intimate, fully committed for all of eternity. And God says, if you're going to be like me, if you're going to reflect me, you have to begin to experience that. So just like a wedding ceremony, God brings Eve. You know know why we do this in a wedding? Why the father walks a daughter down the aisle to the husband? It's because this is what happened in the beginning. God the Father walks Eve to Adam and says, I want you to experience this. And what that means is when God gives this to Adam and says, I want you to have this marriage, he's saying, I want you to experience this incredible gift called marriage. And if you understand that, what that should tell you right away is is it should protect us from two enormous dangers that we have with marriage. On the one hand, it should protect you from the belief that marriage is a curse or a bad idea. Now, uh, this is a large part of our society, and maybe your children will begin to believe this, or your friends will believe this, that marriage is like a traditional social arrangement that we did when values and things were different. Uh, When we were less enlightened, when we were less relationally connected, but now, where we are, uh, anybody who's smart, anybody who's enlightened, anybody who's in touch with their own sexuality knows it's crazy to think about uh, being monogamous with one person your whole life, uh, and being only committed to them, and being only intimate and vulnerable with them. Uh, that's like putting a square peg in a round hole. But that's, not, that's just not actually reflective of society at all. Because what statistics actually will tell you is that the practice of marriage is actually the best thing for our society. Um, here's just some statistics for you. Uh, in 1992, there was a study that said 75% of uh, uh, our people who are married have 75% more wealth at retirement than people who are not. It says men who are married earn 10 to 40% more income, that they're motivated to do this, Uh, they're expected to do this, they pursue this, than people who are not married. Uh, Another hit one, uh, emotionally what it does for people, there are enormous statistics on people who are married massively improving their mental and emotional health. And what what it does is it makes you get outside of yourself, makes you live for somebody else, it makes you serve somebody else, makes you make decisions in light of somebody else. It's like a shock absorber to the selfishness that society throws at you. Um, another statistic, it says uh, 62% of people in marriage are happy. That's two-thirds of people in a marriage are happy. And that one-third that is not happy, uh, if they stay married, if they pursue and they persevere through for another five years, uh, two-thirds of the, that, that group become happy. Uh, another statistic says children from married homes three times more likely to have positive, su- successful lives when they grow up. Now, th- none of those statistics are meant to, uh, to shame or to pr- over-define any of our stories, but they're just meant to communicate this, that this gift that God wanted to give the world and say, I want you to experience something that I have is an amazing blessing on life here. But if you're in a marriage and you feel like this is the worst thing that ever happened to me, I'd like you to just for a moment challenge yourself on that rather than challenge the idea of this because it's overwhelming that what we've been given here is one of the greatest ways to flourish and know what it's like to be like God and be in fellowship like Him. It's an amazing gift, but the gift, if you understand it as a gift, it will also protect you from being entitled to a marriage. Uh, Ernest Becker, who was a renowned atheist, uh, wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning book called The Denial of Death. And in it, he said, as secularism grows, this was a really honest thought, he said people actually will need something to put in the center of their life because we're removing God from the center of life Something else will need to be there to to give meaning and purpose in life. He says one of the most instinctive ideas that human beings will have is when they take God out the middle of their life is to put romantic relationships there. And he coined this phrase, apocalyptic hookups, that what people will want is to connect with somebody else romantically or sexually because that will give them the very meaning and significance in their life for something that that God was only meant to give them. He said this, The love partner is a divine ordeal within which is to fulfill one's life. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused in one individual. After all, what is it we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption, nothing else. Now, all of us, because we're living in an American secular culture, are are to some degree uh, vulnerable to that. And what that means is we are all tempted to come into marriage with the idea of being entitled to it. Like, I deserve this. I should be given this. This is one of my almost rights as a human being. And here's some signs that you've done that. Um, you're discontent because your marriage is not perfect. Like some people look at their marriage and regret it. And the reason you regret it is often not because something catastrophic or awful has happened, it's because it's just not the idealistic thing that you thought it was going to be before you got into it. And what you did there is you idolized the idea of thinking When I get this, then it'll be okay. Then everything will be exactly as I wanted it to be in life. And when it's turned out to be good, but not perfect, we we almost can't handle the breakdown. Uh, Here's another sign. You're overly concerned by how much you or your spouse have changed. Look, when you get married... I mean, it is one of the biggest things in life. And so when the biggest things in life happen to you, they, they will change you. But what happens is a lot of people get married and we all of a sudden begin to be so concerned that someone else has changed. And what we thought is as we are, this is exactly how it should be. This is not going to require me to change. It's not going to require the other person to change that we should just be given it as it is, which tells you that you were idolizing and making an ideal world out of what you were dating and when you were dating. Here's another sign. You hate being single. If you struggle with contentment, when you're single, what you're saying to yourself is, marriage will heal all of this emptiness and loneliness that I'm experiencing. And and when you do that, what you're doing is you're setting your spouse up for failure because you're putting divine-like expectations on them to solve and heal something that no one else can solve. See, if, if you don't understand that marriage is a gift, then you will dangerously sprint to it or you will cynically run away from it. But what you have to do with marriage is take it as a gift. I mean, how, how do you take a gift? If you come to, like, your birthday, and you walk in, and people want to give you gifts, and you're like, why would you ever give me a gift today? I mean, you've probably been burnt by that idea, and you're cynically unable to receive love, or what you do is you walk in and you say, where are all my gifts? Which means you probably will not be able to enjoy them. I mean, how do you you receive a gift? You receive a gift with gratitude. You almost receive a gift as a a surprise. But when you're given it, what are you supposed to do with it? You're, You're not supposed to just take it, put it in the closet, and go on with your life. You take it. You enjoy it. You steward it. You nourish it. You have to take and understand marriage as a gift. Marriage is a power. Marriage is a gift. But thirdly from this text, as an overview, marriage is a mystery. Paul says this in verse 32, the very next one. He says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I used to hate that verse. And the reason I hate it is because it felt like what Paul was saying is, I'm going to talk to you about relationships and marriage and husbands and wives, but hey, you remember Jesus. Don't you remember to put the Holy Spirit in between you, and don't you forget that there's a spiritual aspect of that. It felt like that the, you know, just the manipulative Christian sort of uh, stamp on a relationship, but that's not what he is saying at all. What he's saying is that when you get married, when you see a marriage, when you witness it, that marriage is saying something profound and it's learning something profound. I mean, when somebody is married and you get married, you are saying something, whether you're aware of it or not, incredibly profound. When he says, I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church, what he is saying is that a, what a marriage is, is a parable on the nature of God's redemption. You, you, ha, you have to understand this, and we've got to become self-aware of this as a church. The reason the church talks about marriage as between a husband and a wife and defends that is not because it's a traditional social arrangement that's just worked well for us. What it is is that at the beginning of the Bible, here's here's what God did. He said, I'm going to create the world, and here's what the creation account does. It says, I'm going to do this in twos. I'm going to do light and darkness. I'm going to separate the sky and the sea, and I'm going to separate the land and the vegetation. And you know what I'm going to do for those three things? I'm going to put things to rule over them. For the light, I'm going to give the sun. And for the darkness, I'm going to give the moon. And for the sky, I'm going to give the birds. And for the sea, I'm going to give the fish. And for the land, I'm going to give the, uh, I'm going to give the animals. And for the vegetation and everything else, I'm going to give mankind. And all throughout the Bible is tethered this whole relationship of things to be loved, things to be stewarded, things to be ruled over, and something to steward, care for, and rule over it. And it climaxes all in the, in the end, and this is where history is going, is it says the new heavens and the new earth will come together and be one. And that's where God will heal all things. And, and this is what Paul is saying here. He says, in the best way to tell that whole story is in a marriage. And when you get married and you say, I'm leaving you, mom and dad, and I'm going to join to this person, whether you are aware of it or not, God says, that's what's happening and that's what people are saying. And it's so profound and it's so intricate, there are almost are not words, which is why God wanted us to live this out amongst one another. That's a profound mystery that you're telling. But, he, but at the same exact time that you're telling that, you're also learning something incredible. Uh, there was a hysterical... Um, there's, a, there's an Instagram feed called Overheard LA. And what it is is the most ridiculously out-of-touch things said in our city that people overhear and just send in to somebody to, to write. And, and somebody said this a couple weeks ago. It says, I've decided I do want a wedding just not a marriage. And as hysterical and naive as that is, I think it's actually pretty profound because there's saying there's something about a wedding that says I was built for that. Think about this, why why in like the secular nature of movies, in romantic comedies, and all all throughout Hollywood, when they have a a love story that ends well, why do they never go to the justice of the peace? Why, whatever the worldview is, do they always end in a wedding? It's, It's because what a wedding is, is deep down getting into the bottom of what it means to be a human being and says, we were meant to experience and be built for something like this. And what Paul is saying in this verse, is he says, when you see that, when you're drawn to a wedding, do you know that's exactly how God wants to know you? And you were built like for that from the beginning. And when you see a wedding, when you're drawn to a wedding, when you're emotionally connected to it, he's saying the deep part of your soul is crying out for God to be known by that. Mike Mason, in his book, um, The Mystery of Marriage uh, has a great little section where he he says, you know, one of the uncanny things about marriage is you can be with somebody for 10 years, for 20 years, for 50 years, and know them better than anybody, and yet the longer you're with them, the more you say to yourself, this person is a stranger. Like, I know them better than anyone, but I don't think, I, I, I don't know them at all. Like, who is this person I'm married to? And he says that that frustration is actually one of the largest ones that human beings experience. It's the limits that other people can give you. That our need for intimacy far outstrips people's ability to give it to us. But he says, you know, that limitation of not being able to get what we actually need and want from somebody else is one of the most profound ways that God touches us. And He says that, that thing in you that's crying out, even for somebody who's been good to you for 40 or 50 years out, you know what that's saying? Is it's saying the proximity of God is actually deep within you. And that's His presence saying, that part is only reserved for me. Do you, do you know that mystery? Like, do, do, you, do you know that God wants to be known and connected to you? Not, not just as a creator. Not just not as a judge. Not just as a king. But as a spouse. There's an amazing place in John chapter 2. Where it's the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and he's at a wedding. And what happens in the wedding is uh, they're having this enormous celebration, and they run out of wine, like that, which means the party is going to be over. And Jesus' mom turns to him and says, Jesus, we're out of wine. And he, he, on Mother's Day, he, he looks at her, his mom, and he says, woman, now, if your son said to you, woman, I think you'd probably have permission to slap him. But here's Jesus saying, woman, what does that have to do with me? And he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, and what, what, he's, what he's saying there is Jesus is saying, ma'am, this is not my wedding. Now, if you've been to a wedding, you can't help if you're married, but remember your own. And if you're single, you can't help but think one day about the one day if you will get married. You know what Jesus is saying when he says, "This is not my wedding," is he's thinking about his wedding to you, and he's wondering what it will cost and what it will take to serve wine at his wedding. And what it will take is his very life. And Jesus wants to know, wants you to know at the beginning of his ministry that he is willing to do anything to die, to be married to you. If you, do, if you don't know that, if you don't know the, the mystery of marriage that way, that Jesus wants to know you that way, and when you are married, what you should say is that as difficult as this is, this is how Jesus loves me and wants to know me, then, then you will never be able to be what Tim Keller calls a, 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 a love f- philanthropist. You know what a philanthropist is? is they, they make so much money over here that they can just easily give money away over here. If you don't know the mystery of marriage that way, then what will happen is you will only be able to give love to your spouse to the degree that they give it to you. See, if they are your greatest source of happiness, then you'll only be as happy as they are amazing to you. And anybody who's been married longer than a week knows that there are weeks that that's not possible. But what the mystery of marriage says is, everything I want from you, I've already got from Him, which means it's possible for me to get so much from God that I never run out of stuff to be able to give to you. Do you know that? Do you know that the world is going to end in a marriage and you will be the spouse And you're invited to that right now. That Jesus one day will be at the end of the aisle. And he will not look at you and and say, it's about time. He will weep over you. He will rejoice and say, my bride is finally here. And that, friends, is a profound mystery that's true now. You have to know for marriage. And that's what the Bible thinks about marriage. Let me pray for us. Father, we would want to know this so that we can experience this. We can both live this out amongst us and give this away. Lord, we pray for marriages in this room. We pray for people who want to be married, people who are rejoicing in marriage, people who are hurting in marriage, that you would come by the gospel and renew our view of marriage, renew our understanding of marriage, that you would meet us and you would glorify yourself. Lord, help us to make sense of this profound mystery. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.